0: Really appreciate all the music this morning. Really appreciate that very much. Take your Bible, turn, please, to First Kings, chapter seventeen. First Kings seventeen. Scariest words in the English language are, uh, "trust me." My wife and I, when we had first started dating, we had not been dating very long, and uh, we went on a date. Took a, took a ride in a car, uh, drove over to a park, and we, I think we had like a picnic or something, you know, back when you're romantic, you do things like that, and um, and I was, we were coming out of this uh, park area, it was down in Greenville, and they'd recently repaved these roads, and one of the roads they repaved um, was very, the, 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 uh, the pavement was, or the asphalt had, had, was very, very high off the normal ground, and we went down, I think, a wrong turn. And so I said, well, let me just turn around. I started to do a three-point turn, which I executed horribly and ended up with the front of the car slightly, uh, the wheels suspended, the front of the car suspended and bot- basically bottomed out. Now, it wasn't bad. It wasn't too bad, but I was we were stuck because it was a front-wheel drive, little uh, Acura TL. And so I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I got out of the car. I said, I-, I want you to just get in the driver's seat. I'm going to go in the front of the car, and I'm going to lift and I want you to put in reverse and just back out. And she said, I can't do that. I said, it's, it's not going to be a problem. Really, I'm, I'm stronger than I look. This is not going <laughs> to be big deal. Just, just put in reverse. It'll be fine. She's like, but what if I run over you? I'm like, you're not going to run over me. It's going to be fine. And I tried and tried, but she would not trust me. I said, are you, are you, we really, you're not going to, she said, I, I just can't, I can't bring myself to do this. So I said, okay. So I called, I think it was my brother-in-law. I don't remember. It may have been Josh. Well, it may have been Josh. I called my brother-in-law, Josh, who, who was available. I said, can you come out here and help me out with something? And so he came out and I said, can you get in the driver's seat? And, and he said, I don't mind running you over. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so he got in the driver's seat and, and sure enough, it was fine. And we got on the road. And um, I remembered that moment because, you know, when you don't know somebody well, it's really hard to trust them. And we had not known each other that well. We were were still dating. We were still very early in our relationship, and she couldn't tell if I was out of my mind or if I was being reasonable, and and she was not willing to risk trusting me. Now, fortunately, we're married now, (laughs) and so she has no other option (laughs) but to trust me. Trusting is hard. In fact, the title of this message is Learning to Trust, and God puts Elijah the prophet through several tests to teach him how to trust in this passage of Scripture. And it's so important that we understand that God often brings difficulties in our life, tests that are designed to teach you to trust Him. That's the whole point of a lot of the things God brings your way. Let's ask God for for His blessing before we look into His Word today. Father, we thank you. We can come set aside a time of our week where we can look in your word and be challenged and be provoked and be convicted and allow your spirit to change us. And so today, may we be people who trust you fully with our heart and help us, Lord. Help us. We need to trust you. Help us to know you so we can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Learning to trust. Let's begin in verse 1. We see Elijah, as I mentioned last week, uh, chapter 16 ends the first kind of act of our story where the, the the stage has been set. All the idol worship is, is, is happening, and the kings of Israel and Judah are both falling into sin, and the kings of Israel have fallen so far as that Ahab now is their king. Ahab, the one who brought Baal worship to to, his, uh, to, the play, to, the, to the nation of Israel. And so, how would God respond to this wicked king? How would God deal with this? Well, he sends a prophet named Elijah, a man from the mountainous region of Gilead, to confront the king with his wickedness and tell him the consequences of his sinfulness. First test that we see is that God asks Elijah to trust him. Verse 1 says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, except at my word. The first thing you'll notice, and this is very interesting to me, is that God asks Elijah to trust Him because faith. Elijah has faith that God will chasten His children. You notice that Elijah, the prophet, is a settler, is an inhabitant of Gilead. He's a mountainous region to the east of the Jordan River. He's not known as a sophisticated region. This is a man who is a mountain man, a rural man, who's considered more of a rough character, and he comes and confronts those in polite society, the king of Israel, Ahab, and he makes a declaration. If you look at your Bible, it says that God is the living Lord, as the Lord God of Israel lives. He is the one behind this message. And what's the message? The prophet says, there will be no dew nor rain except at the prophet's word. Now, they would suffer a lack of prosperity, dew and rain, and there would be economic depression that would follow, no dew, no rain, because of the word of the prophet. Now, Elijah's doing more than warn that his prosperity would be harmed. In fact, this is a direct attack against the, the God they're worshiping. If you look back just one chapter, we see in 1 Kings 16, as I mentioned earlier, that Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So, God is being put aside. Baal is being embraced. And if we understand that Baal was a storm god, Baal was responsible for the lightning, the thunder, and the rain to come, according to their thinking there in Canaan. Baal would bring fertility and rain to the land. And the people, when they experienced famine, listen carefully, here's what they thought. They thought that Baal had died and gone to the underworld because he had to submit himself to the death god named Mot, and then one day he would be brought back and bring fertility back. He would be weakened and killed in a sense. But then at the end, he would, as he was not really dead, he would wake up and he would come back and bring fertility to the land. So by declaring that God is the one who lives... Elijah is saying it's not about Baal. Your Baal that you're worshiping can't do anything because he is not able to stand against the God who lives. But this brings up an interesting question. Why did this happen? Why did Elijah go and make this command? Because I looked and I looked. But never does it tell us that God told Elijah to go and make this declaration. I always thought that God commanded Elijah to go and, and to do this, but that's not what it says. And so I started thinking, what in the world is it? Why would Elijah have gone and do this? I believe that if you look at the Bible back here, at Deuteronomy chapter 11, we have these verses. Let me just read them for you. This is God talking here. Uh, Through Moses, he says, It shall come to be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain, the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and I will send grass in your fields for your livestock, that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Look at verse 17, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and He shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. If you don't obey God, what could you expect? Expect drought. Further, Elijah makes a declaration against Ahab. It's based on the promise and the warnings of God. In fact, we have this in James chapter 5 as well. We'll come back to this verse later. But the passage says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. We're told in James that Elijah prayed, God, withhold the, land, withhold the rain from the land in order to show your judgment upon these people. So Elijah functions in a way to show the chastening of God on his people. Uh, he comes and he says, look, there's a real big problem here. There's going to be rain, no rain and no dew. And with this problem, how will the prophet be taken care of? He has now made himself enemy number one in the kingdom. So what happens next? Well, faith, secondly, that God will provide as he promises. Look with me in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Notice for the first time the word of the Lord comes to him and promises to protect him. He says, you, Elijah, need to flee and hide from King Ahab by declaring a drought. And as the drought come, Elijah would become uh, a wanted man. His curse would make him like a Terrorist on their economy. He is now a man that everyone would be looking for. In fact, we find out later that it's exactly what's going on that everyone is looking, will be looking for Elijah. And so, but the way that God says, I'm going to protect you, Elijah, is not the way that Elijah might have drawn up in his own mind. God says, I want you to go and settle by a brook. Okay? a brook is like a drainage area it's a very small river it's a wadi it's not a main river and he just declared a drought so it's going to dry up soon and secondly he says i'm going to send ravens to feed you now there's a problem ravens aren't exactly known as animals that bring you food they're known as the animals that come and take away your food you don't you don't want to have a you know the ravens would swoop down and steal your picnic not bring you the picnic. So Elijah is listening to the word of the Lord, and he has a choice. God, you've proven yourself faithful to provide food and water for the nation of Israel in the wilderness when we were wandering. Lord, you proved yourself faithful, so I will go and hide as you've called me to hide. I will go exactly where you've told me to go, and I'll trust you to provide. And what we see is that faith demonstrated through obedience. So he went, verse 5, And he did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. We see Elijah's obedience. He did according to the word of the Lord. His obedience showed that he truly believed what God had told him would happen. He didn't doubt God's ability to follow through. It's very simple to understand this. Do you say you believe God? If you say you believe God, you obey God. Obedience and faith are connected. When you believe God, you obey Him. You do what He says. If you obey Him, that is demonstrating your faith in Him. Secondly, we see God's faithfulness in verse 6. As Elijah obeyed, God showed His faithfulness to His word. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and the bread and meat in the evening. He drank from the brook. What God said would happen, happened. We see this over and over again in this story. God is faithful to his word. And then we see a transition in verse 7. It said, while it ha-, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up. Now, who could have seen that coming? Obviously, it was going to happen at some point. So, what does God do? Because there had been no rain in the land, how would God care for his servant? And we see here the first Test would Elijah trust the word of the Lord and seek provision in a place that seemed unusual? That's the first test. And God says, would you try, would you, would you test me? I'm going to test you. Would you allow me to tell you where to go? It's not where you would pick to go, but I'm going to send you there. And Elijah passes the test. And so the next challenge that God is going to give Elijah is even a step further. It requires him to actually Ask someone else to trust the Lord. And that's what we see in the second point is that Elijah asks the woman to trust God. It's one thing for God to challenge you to believe Him and trust Him. It's another thing, and perhaps more challenging, for you to ask someone else to trust God too. Look at verse 8. We see God's unusual command. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, why would, God, why would Elijah need to trust God? As shocking as it might seem for us to believe, I think God is asking him to do something even more challenging than the last test because he says, I want you to go to Zarephath. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to us unless you were an ABF and you looked at the map and you saw where Zarephath is. And those of you who looked at this, notice that it belongs to Sidon. That is a place near Sidon. And if you remember, Sidon is the home place of whom? Jezebel. Jezebel's father, Ephbaal, was king of Sidon, and Zarephath is near Sidon. So he's saying, I want you to travel across open country to the exact place where the king's wife's father is the king. I want you to go into the the lion's mouth. You're going into a dangerous place. But he says something more. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Live there. It's not going to be a short stay. You're going to put up camp. You, the prophet of God, are going to go into Baal's territory and live. If you keep looking, there is another thing going on that it means that his means of provision would actually be a widow. Now, typically, widows in this time, especially, weren't known for being rich, they were typically beggars who had to scrounge for their own food, yet God says, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. So again, I'm putting myself in Elijah's mind, and I wonder what Elijah's thinking. I'm thinking, well, maybe he wonders, is this a rich widow? Maybe this is a rich widow. That's what you've done, Lord. You've given me the the house of a rich widow. That would be great to have the provisions of that. And God has already made the arrangements. He says, I've already commanded a widow to provide for you. So, the challenge then, we see the challenge for unusual faith. Look at verse 10. So, he arose and went to Zarephath. Elijah obeys without a hesitation at all. And when he comes to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hands. Notice the immediate obedience where he goes exactly where God says. He arrives at the gate of the city. He sees a widow there gathering sticks. The word indeed is the word behold. It's like, it's like if I could translate it into our language today, it would be like, Well, what do you know? It's like, Well, what do you know? There is a woman right there, and she's a widow. And somehow it's obvious that she's a widow. She's out working by herself. She's, she's gathering sticks. And I, I don't know if Elijah knows it's the woman yet that, that God has called him. We don't know. Maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't know. But he calls out to her. And he says, he says uh, please bring me a cup of water. And she turns. She turns to go and do that. And then he says one more thing, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hands. And look at verse 12. She knows exactly who he is. And she said, as Yahweh, as the Lord, your God lives, so she knows. Now he knows, she knows, and she knows, he knows, and they know who they are. (laughs) As the Lord, your God lives. Remember the living God? He's not the dead God. He's the living God. I do not have bread. I only have a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in Prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. She has been visited by the Lord, instructed by the Lord. She knows who Elijah is. She believes in the living God, not the worthless, not the dead, idol Baal. She cannot do what Elijah has asked her to do because all she has is flour and oil enough for one last meal. Yet God had asked her to provide for this this prophet, and I don't know how long God had asked her to provide, how long ago it was that God had come to her and asked her to provide. It could have been months, and she could have seen her provisions dwindle and dwindle and dwindle, and she starts to ask herself, I'm supposed to provide for this prophet of the Lord when he comes, but I have less and less for myself. We don't know how long that lasted, but at some point, she finally makes the decision. She makes the decision, it's over. Everything's done. I have nothing left in this life, we are starving, and we're going to die. So what I'm going to do, my son, who perhaps is even too weak to get up, or else he would be with her, perhaps, we don't know. She, she says, I have enough strength to go out and gather sticks, and I will gather the sticks to make the fire, and I will gather enough sticks just to make a fire so we can make the bread, so we can make it one more time, and we can have one last meal before we die. That is the extreme hopelessness. This is the kind of extreme hopelessness which we really are not very familiar with. This is as dour as it gets. She's given up, but Elijah challenges her faith. Look at verse 13. Elijah says to her, do not fear. He points to the motivating, the crippling factor in her life. She was afraid, and why wouldn't she be? She was facing death, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth he says, go and do as you've said. That is, you will have the opportunity to make this meal for you and your son. You will. But first, you must make a cake for me. Bring it to me. Only then can you make it for you and your son. How is this possible? She knows how much she has. In fact, I remember the first time I read this, I thought, boy, that's really insensitive of Elijah. I mean, how how many of us would look at somebody who's saying, I'm going to make my last meal, like, okay, you can do that, but first make me a meal, right? That comes off really kind of cruel. But it's not cruel at all because what Elijah is saying is, you have to trust God. You have to trust God. And, And it's more even more than that because they had resigned themselves for one last comfort, one last meal before they die. All she wanted now was one final sweet moment together before they held themselves and they died. And he says in verse 14 that the Lord God of Israel, remember they're not in Israel, they're in Zarephath. Remember the Lord God of Israel. He has power here just as he has down there. He's saying he has made a promise that the bin of flour would not be used up. The jar of oil will not run dry until the day he sends rain. Notice she had everything to gain if she would give up the one thing she had placed her hope for comfort in. She had placed her hope for comfort in just one last meal, and the prophet made this promise that the Word of God says, prepare a meal first for me, demonstrating that you believe God can provide. Because you have to give up that one thing you are holding on to for comfort. You have to give it up. You cannot, also, you cannot make your meal first. If you make your meal first, it's over. But first make the meal for me. That shows you know that God can provide. Can you imagine how nervous Elijah would have been I mean, this is his provision, and he's having to lean on her to trust God. The challenge for very, that's what I call it, unusual faith. But we see here that faith was demonstrated once again through obedience. Look at verse 15, because a most remarkable thing happens. A pagan woman who lived in a pagan place known to worship Baal chooses to trust the word of the living God. So she went away and did "'According to the word of Elijah.' "'How does God reward her faith? "'And she and her household ate for many days. "'The bin of flour was not used up, "'nor did the jar of oil run dry, "'according to the word of the Lord, "'which he spoke by Elijah. "'God is faithful to his word.' God demonstrates his faithfulness to them by their obedience. God demonstrates his faithfulness. He does not allow that jar of oil to run dry, the bin of flour to be used up. I mean, just think about every day she wakes up, right? And she goes and she says, well, today's a new day. We'll see what God has done. And she goes and she opens her bin and there's like no, there's, there's flour in there. She's like, I really thought I took it all yesterday. And she uses it that day, and the next day she goes again and once again. It's not that God gives her too much flour. God gives her enough to live by faith day by day by day. Every day, it's another day of faith. Every day is another step. And these are the songs like, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here come from. Songs like that talk about the day by day. When God provided manna in the wilderness, he did not provide tons of manna for everyone to have as much as they wanted to store up for themselves. No, it was day by day, by day, in the same thing here. In fact, this faith is so unusual and so tremendous that Jesus references this in Luke chapter 4. He said to them, "Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. I will tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up in 3 year, for shut up 3 years and 6 months." And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were lots of women, lots of widows, but this was the one who had faith. A couple points of application as we wrap up this second point is that you need to see the significant acts of faith from this widow woman, that she was willing to give up the one thing she had placed her hope and comfort in so that God would bless her. And and I want to, don't want to stretch this too far, but I need to ask you this. What is God asking you to place on the altar to give up, to surrender to Him, so He can take what you give Him and do something marvelous? We hold on to things, thinking that if we had control, then we would have what we need. But God says, give it to me. Surrender it to me, surrender your gifts and your talents, and I will use them in a tremendous way. This is the essence of faith, and it took a widow woman in a pagan land to show us that. The second test is that Elijah would trust the word of the Lord and seek provision from a place. I'm sorry, the first test was that Elijah would seek provision from an unusual place. He passed that test. The second test is that the woman would trust God with this unusual faith, and she passed that test. But what happens next shocks both Elijah and the woman. Because up to this point, there's a pattern that's been pretty well established. We see it. God's word instructs the prophet to go to a certain place and do something unusual to take a step of faith. The prophet takes that step of faith, does what seems unusual and seems difficult, and God answers or God blesses by fulfilling his word. Straightforward. That, that has happened over and over again. God's Word has prov- proven true. Twice now it's happened in a row. But in the next scene, God does something special. He doesn't always warn us. He doesn't always tell us when things are going to happen before they happen. In fact, most of the time, we don't receive any warning when God tests us. Look with me in verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious... That there was no breath left in him. What God is doing is, He's moving from asking them to trust His word, now He's asking them to trust His character. He's saying, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do ahead of time. You need to know that I'm good, even when it looks like I've lost control. This is the saddest point of the story because you see the emotions of surprise and anger and guilt all balled up in one distraught woman. Look at verse 18. She said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and kill my son? What's the point of living? You brought me this far. What's the point of living if you take away my son? I'm nothing else. She's saying, Okay, I survive. I'm taking care of you, but now my son's dead. Thank you very much. What good is this? You can, you can feel it. You can feel it in how she says, oh, what, are you, what have I to do with you? Why are you in my house? Why are you here? You brought my sin to remembrance. There's guilt there. And she feels like this is some sort of punishment for her sins, and she blames God for killing her son. God, why would you let him live only to die? You, can, you understand the grief this woman's experiencing. Those of you who've lost children, you understand how heart-gut-wrenching that is. I've walked this with many of you. We've we've held hands and been in places where it's like, I don't understand this. God, I don't understand what you're doing. It's overwhelming. And she understands this overwhelming nature, which is why I say you need to learn to trust God's character when you face loss. When you face loss, this is the time when you learn to trust God is a good God. That's the time when it's easiest to question, is God a good God? I'm facing loss. God has taken something away from me that I love. God has taken something away from me that I put my hope in. God has taken something away from me that I wanted. Lord, are you still good? And he says, trust me when you experience loss. And how does, how does Elijah handle this, this outburst of anger from this woman? He, he doesn't argue with her. He doesn't fight her. He simply takes her son And he asked God to do, Lord, what will you do now? Which is why I say we must trust God's character by praying to him. This is so important. We can't just do nothing. We must pray. Verse 19, he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God. Have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? Prayer of Elijah is a prayer of confusion, a prayer of grief. It's a question. Lord, have you brought tragedy? The literal word there is evil. Have you brought evil? Have you brought calamity, judgment on this woman by killing her son? Did you do this, Lord? Why would you do this? You didn't warn me. You didn't warn her. No one knew this was happening. It happened in a moment. And he's questioning God just like this woman. He's learned to trust the Word of God. Now you must trust the character of God. What kind of God would allow a woman and her son to live through the drought and die now? What kind of God would allow senseless or meaningless loss Was God being vengeful against this woman for some reason? How is that compatible with what we've learned about God from His Word? Or was God teaching Elijah and this woman something about his abilities? Was God, the living God, going to prove to Elijah and to this woman that His great power is over life and death? And so we have Elijah's choice he chooses to believe God and do something miraculous. Verse 21, he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. What a bold prayer. This is not common. When someone dies, they die. It's very unusual to see someone come back from the dead. And Elijah trusts that God can raise this son from the dead. And then verse 22, it says, Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. That God brought, re- brought resurrection to this young boy as a demonstration of his power over death and over life. Lastly, we should trust God's character and proclaim who he is. So Elijah takes the child and brought him up from the upper room to the house and gave him to his mother. Notice what the woman says. Elijah says, see your son lives, and the woman responds, now by this I know you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Now she knows that two things, that Elijah really is a man of God, he serves God, speaks for God, and two, that God's word is true. She knows the truth of God's word. God's word is the theme of this whole sermon series, God's word to a divided kingdom. God's word is powerful, and he can be trusted because he is truly speaking. Now, God's not going to raise every person who dies from the dead. This is a very unusual circumstance. But he teaches us through this that we can trust him. In fact, there are several things he teaches us, and I have them there in bullet points. I want you to follow along as we wrap this up because I need you to really concentrate and think about how this intersects with your life. Number one, God provides. And God provides for those who trust him. This is key. God provides for those who trust him. In this story, God provides through unusual means. He provides through ravens. He provides through a widow woman living in Zarephath. He does this for a simple reason. I am the source, not them. God is saying. God is saying, I don't want you to get confused here that we, whenever we, we need something, we go to the ravens. Or whenever we need something, we find a widow woman. and We say, hey, make me some food. God says, no, these are unusual circumstances. I'm using these unusual circumstances to point to the source and the power through which I provide. And that is God is the one who provides. And we have to remember that. You have a job, very good, God provided that job for you. You have a family, very good, God provided that family for you. You have friends, you have a church, God provided that. Don't ever make the mistake thinking that you are the source of your own blessings or that someone else is the source of your blessings. God provides to those who trust Him, and God is using this provision to teach Elijah to trust Him. He's saying, Elijah, you've got to learn to trust me in small matters so you can trust me when things get much larger. Secondly, he's teaching him to trust him in the times when it is is private because Elijah here wrestles with these things when no one else is around. He is facing these troubles by himself, by the brook Cherith, with a widow woman there in Zarephath and in the house with the widow woman and her son. He is not in front of a lot of people. God is dealing with him in a very private moment and preparing him for what is to come. Secondly, God cares, especially He cares about those who have a past. I was thinking about this this week that God cares about those who've lost hope. If you've lost hope, God cares about you. God cares about those who live with fear. It's overwhelming to me how often we talk with people who are overwhelmed by fear. They can't live their lives without fear crowding into every thought. The first thing he says to the woman is, do not fear. Perfect love casts out fear, says the New Testament. And God God cares about those who have a past. God cares about those who carry deep guilt. This woman, as soon as she faces uh, a trial, she turns to God and says, so you're paying me back for my guilt. She has, I don't know her story, but she has a deep guilt. There's something in her past that she is deeply guilty over, and she's never dealt with that. She's never understood the forgiveness of God, and so as she's experiencing hardship, she immediately turns inwardly and thinks, I'm the cause of this. And those of you who deal with guilt know exactly what I'm talking about. You experience hardship and say, oh, it's the Lord getting me back it's my guilt. God cares. God cares about you, and He wants to show you how to handle your guilt in a way that honors Him. God's message to each one of these people is turn to the God who provides. Yeah. Thirdly, God blesses and uses prayer. I don't want us to miss this point, but God uses the prayers of His saints. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. Right. Mm-hmm. Every single Wednesday night, except for, ironically, this coming Wednesday night, we have a special service. <laughs> But every single Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we meet here as a church family for a prayer time. And that first half hour is us gathering in small groups. We take a few prayer requests. But really, for like 25, 30 minutes, we get together and we go on our knees before the Lord. And we we ask God to intervene on the behalf of our our brothers and sisters in Christ, on those who don't yet know the Lord, for our country, for our leaders, for for people around us. Uh, We we pray because we believe prayer is important. We're not going to get rid of a prayer service. We're going to meet with God and pray to Him. And don't ever underestimate. Notice what James says. He says in James 5, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It's amazing when you consider that, that Elijah's just like you and me. I tend to think of Elijah as a superhero. He's no superhero. He had the same problems. In fact, we'll see this in a couple chapters. Elijah has the same issues we all have. He goes through fits of depression, fits of anxiety and fear. At this moment, he seems unbeatable, but he's a normal man. It says, Elijah was a man with like passions or with like nature like ours. He's made of the same stuff we all are made of, and he prayed earnestly it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. The earth produced rain. Its fruit. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. He's made, God has made prayer an essential element of how He works in the world. I don't understand how that works, but God says it's true, so I believe it. And that means that when you pray, things can actually change. I don't, so many people have gone on the other side and said, well, prayer is just about us, um, about God's going to do what He's going to do. We're just like trying to align our hearts with God. You read the Bible, I have a hard time coming up with that conclusion. God says prayers of the saints do things. I don't understand how that works, but God says it works, so we should pray. Pray like it matters, because it does. In fact, your prayer life and your faith in God are directly linked to each other. If you believe God, you will pray, because God is working, and you pray because you know God answers prayers according to His will. I was reviewing some of my uh, notes from a book I read a while ago by E.M. Bounds on prayer. And I'm just going to read. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to hang with me here. As we conclude, I need to read this. (laughs) He says, this, however, is not a day of prayer. Few men there are who pray. Prayer is defamed by preacher and priest. In these days of hurry and bustle, of electricity and steam, men will not take time to pray. Preachers, there are who say prayers as part of their program on regular or state occasions, but who stirs himself up to take hold upon God? Who prays as Jacob prayed till he is crowned as a prevailing princely intercessor? Who prays as Elijah prayed till all the locked-up forces of nature were unsealed in a famine-stricken land, bloomed as the garden of God? who prayed as Jesus Christ prayed as out upon the mountain. He continued all night in prayer to God. The apostles gave themselves to prayer, the most difficult thing to get men or even the preachers to do. Laymen there are who will give their money, some of them in rich abundance, but they will not give themselves to prayer, without which their money is but a curse." There are plenty of preachers who will preach and deliver great and eloquent addresses on the need for revival and the spread of the kingdom of God, but not many there who will do that without which all preaching and organizing are worse than vain. Pray. It is out of date, almost a lost art, and the greatest benefactor this age could have is the man who will bring the preachers and the church back to prayer. Will we pray? Will we learn to trust? How do you learn to trust? You learn to trust God when you learn to pray. Pray. Pray to God. Give it all to Him. Know He is the one who can make change. He is the one who cares. Will you trust God when you go through testings? Father, we ask you today to work in our hearts. Burden us because we are not a praying people. We are so self-sufficient in so many things. God, please show us where we are weak and help us to become a people who rely on You, who our first inclination when we face trial is to turn to You, our Savior, and to pray. So today, Father, we think of this example You've given us in Your Word, and we ask You to help us to see ourselves in the story and what You're teaching us through it, how You are the God who provides, the God who cares, the God who uses prayer. And may we fully appreciate the power of prayer that you have, you have entrusted to us, you have asked us to do it. And Elijah, our example here, learn to trust you. Thank you for showing us yourself in this passage as a God who cares and a God who loves and brings us through trials with purpose. And so, Lord, today I pray for our folks here at church, many who struggle with different things. I think about physical struggles, yes, but the spiritual, the emotional, the the relational struggles that are present in this room, the, the families that have been under stress and strain because of difficulty, the the relationships that have been challenged and are broken because of selfishness and sin. And, and Lord, help us to be a people of truth and a people of love, and a people who cling to you, knowing that you are the God who loves us and will allow us to go through hard things as a way of showing us more of who you are. And it is for your glory and for our good. And let us cling to that today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you a moment to deal with God. This is a very serious point, a very serious message dealing with our weakness here. And I think there's many of us who need to have a moment to commit ourselves to God. So we're going to let the pianist play. And as she plays, I'm going to let you just deal with God for a few minutes and say, Lord, please forgive me for my prayerlessness. Forgive me for my my lack of faith. And help me, Lord, to trust you today, to trust you now. I'll give you a few moments now. Deal with God as you would. this song we're about to sing be a testimony of our hearts that it is sweet for us to trust in our Lord Jesus.